0: Our message this morning is entitled, Selling All, and will come from the book of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. I'll read those passages for you first. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he hath and bought it. We want to consider today these two parables from Matthew chapter 13 and observe the various things that this these two parables would convey unto us the way that they're alike the way that they're different. And this comes on the end of some thoughts that I shared on our live stream Wednesday night, if you were able to tune into that. We spoke from the book of Philippians, and we shared with you, with you some thoughts on being Christocentric, and we juxtaposed being Christocentric with being egocentric, putting Christ as the center of your life and all that you do as opposed to putting yourself the center of your life, the center of everything that you or I would do. We know that the way of this world is to be egocentric, me, myself, and I, to pursue that which pleases me. We're living in a very hedonistic society. Whatever feels good to me is what people do, whether it's beneficial for them or even harmful to other people. We're in a very selfish society, and that's emulate is depicted, demonstrated commonly on social media, on the internet, and your experiences in stores and traffic and the workplace and everywhere else. We just live in a very selfish society. But the Christian is to put Christ at the center of everything, and we use the book of Philippians Wednesday night to demonstrate this. As we pointed out, even in the first 12 verses, you find the word Christ in the book of Philippians, and we have admonitions to Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. We learn that we can do all things through Christ. We learn that Christ will perform this work in us, that he began in us, even unto his coming, that we're to have joy in Christ, and we observed all the ways that Paul would speak in a Christocentric way from the book of Philippians. I want to look at, as we begin, just as a way to tie this in with what we considered on the live stream Wednesday night, Philippians chapter 3 and Paul's statements concerning his pedigree, you might say, and what to him all of his pedigree meant once he learned what Christ was to be in his life, what Christ was in his life. Paul says, "...though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more." And that's simply saying, if any other person in the world thinks that he has the ability to boast in who he is naturally, I could boast even more. In other words, I have more reason in my generation to brag or to boast than any other man... Paul begins to talk about his pedigree, you might call it, circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And we would refer to someone that's very manly as a man's man. In other words, of all the men you know, that is a man. Paul is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Of all the Hebrews that you would know, Paul was a Hebrew. As touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. In other words, he would be willing to lose his pedigree. He would be willing to lose his standing among his peers, the Pharisees, his religious clout, because of his religious clout, probably his... Reputation which led to the damage of his finances. Everything that a man could lose, Paul lost for Christ. He was willing to lose for Christ. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things... And do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Paul's language there is very graphic, and sometimes we're so modest in our supposed modern American modesty and morality that we don't want to mention things such as that from the pulpit, and if we do, we might be tempted to blush. But Paul counts everything that he had nationally, naturally, financially, His reputation, his pedigree, his family lineage, everything he counts, but as if it were dung that he might win Christ. Now obviously Paul isn't a man here who's not born again, who's trying to work his way to heaven. Paul is a saved man. Paul is the one who wrote those wonderful words from Romans chapter 8. That we were foreknown and predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. And because of that, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. He reckons that things present, things to come, height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. Paul understood he was secure in Christ, and yet in his life he endeavored to win Christ. He sought him... He endeavored to pursue him. He wanted to win him. He wanted to experience the Lord Jesus in his personal life. And because of that, he was willing to lose everything that the world around him considered of value. I'm afraid in our country today we have so merged what it means to be an American with what it means to be a Christian that we would not be willing to give up what it means to be an American to be a Christian. And if you doubt that, spend ten minutes on Facebook and you'll be like me. Little red X on the top of the page. Gone. I don't even want to be there. You know, you've seen the gif of the little kid that runs around the corner and he freaks out and he turns around and he goes the other way. That's me. Seven out of seven days when I log on the Internet. what well, wrong place. Go somewhere else. Rachel's taken great advantage of that over the past couple of weeks. She's made me do so many projects around the house. Anyway, we must be willing to give up our American ideas that are contrary to the gospel, political affiliations, How many of us would be willing to sacrifice even that which we have financially for the gospel of Jesus? What would you give for Christ? That's the question that I want to begin with today as we begin looking at those parables in Matthew chapter 13. And again, we've entitled our thoughts today, Selling All, Selling All. Now, as we begin looking at this, these two parables... Matthew chapter 13 is known as Matthew's chapter of kingdom parables. You find several parables in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus begins in chapter 13. He went out of the house. He sat by the seaside. Great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went into a ship and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables. Jesus goes out into a boat. In Mark's gospel, when we studied through that last year, we observed that there were so many people that would come to Jesus, he couldn't even talk or minister. He couldn't move around. There were so many people all around him, touching him, grabbing him, lurching, latching on to him, just he couldn't move because of the people. He couldn't even minister because of the people. He had to sneak around and tell others, don't tell anybody what I just did. There were always great numbers of people around him. He goes out into a boat, a little ship, a little distance from the shore, and he begins to teach his disciples, but as he teaches his disciples, he's also talking to all of the people on the side of the sea. It's important to understand that when Jesus preaches publicly, we talked about this in our little series from John chapter 8, he addresses the crowd indiscriminately, and it's amazing that it's a double-edged sword. Some of what he says is intended his disciples, some of what he says is intended for the people in general, many of them that hated him and didn't believe in him. And we'll see that even in the same sentence that Jesus might say publicly, some of the things that he said were to reveal certain things to some of the people and conceal the very same things to other people. And because of that, as we Introduce this chapter to you. Jesus spake unto them in parables. He speaks in parables and he does so to obscure truth from some while revealing or depicting truth to others. The first of these parables that he gave is the parable of the sower, and that's one that we need to spend some time on soon. We find that there are many people that Jesus spoke about who were not fruitful in the word that they heard because of the cares of this life, I think that would be very important for us in today's time to hear and to study. It would be very important for me. I've thought about that passage a lot this week. After he speaks the parable of the sower, the disciples ask him, What does this mean? Why do you do this? And Jesus answered, and he says in verse 11, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. I speak in parables because to you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. One parable given indiscriminately to reveal truth unto one group of people and obscure or conceal or hide the truth from another group of people, all at the same time. And it's amazing how Jesus would teach in this way. There were people that would hear this. A sower went forth to sow. Some of the seed fell here. Some of the seed fell there. And because of where it fell, it had different yield and longevity as a plant bearing fruit. People passing by that had no spiritual ear might hear that. And they would say, what's the big deal about this guy? I've heard everything in the world about this Jesus of Nazareth. And I come to hear him and he tells me that fruit will grow on trees depending on the ground that it lands on. Well, I already knew that. Why am I even here? But Jesus was using that as an example to teach about our mind and our circumstance, the condition of our heart, misunderstanding and various things that can affect our fruitfulness in the gospel. Jesus would continue to teach parables in this chapter. He would give the parable of the sower. The parable of the wheat and tares, which deals with the end of time. The parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the leaven. The parable of the treasure hid in a field. The parable of a pearl of great price. And the parable of a great net. Now these are kingdom parables. And they reveal unto us, and to others conceal and obscure truths about the kingdom of heaven. And so what we're reading about today is a parable, or two parables to be specific, about the kingdom of heaven. I'll remind you that as Jesus began his ministry, he began by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Some of these parables deal with the phase of God's kingdom that is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The phrase at hand means present in the world today. When Paul wrote about the second coming of Christ in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, I don't want you to be deceived as by word or epistle, as from us, the at the idea that the thought of the second coming of Christ being at hand, the second coming of Christ in Paul's day was not at hand, but the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That means that the kingdom of heaven, many times, is referring to something that is not Future tense, but present tense in the world at that day. For a great description of the kingdom of heaven, I'd commend unto you the end of the book of Hebrews when the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks about the fact that we've received a kingdom that cannot be moved. An innumerable company of angels, the church of the firstborn. The kingdom is in this world. It is at hand. It is the church. But I would clarify it is the church or it is an experience to be found within the church when everything is as it ought to be in the church. We refer to this as a kingdom experience. Now, The physical walls of this building are not the church. In my reading this week, I came across the passage where the Pharisees and others asked Jesus about the coming of his kingdom and they interpreted the kingdom as the restoration of David's kingdom. In other words, we run out the Romans and... We take back our land and we have a king that rules from Jerusalem and we have all of our power and our cloud and our prosperity the way that we used to. But Jesus taught that the kingdom doesn't come with observation. It means you don't see it, the way a physical kingdom marches through the world. But the kingdom is where? The kingdom is within you. It is within you. And so it is a spiritual experience. You are translated into it as a citizen at the new birth, according to the book of Colossians. And yet through repenting and baptizing and being baptized, we enter into its gates and enjoy life within the kingdom. And so you're a member, a citizen of it by birth, and yet you press into it through following the Lord in your life. A great example of that, you could be an American citizen not on U.S. soil. Last year, you know that my brother went through the process of adopting, and in the course of that adoption, they went and spent a month of time in China. And I can't speak from personal experience. I've been all across this continent, but I've never left the U.S., and I've certainly never been to a country that is so... Antithetical to what we know as believers, they, for instance, will grant people long-lasting visas to stay in China, but knowing he's a pastor, he had a very short window of time that he could even be there. And they would tell him that you're allowed to answer questions about your faith, but you are not allowed to share your faith here. You are not allowed to share your faith here. Do you think he felt comfortable being in communist China Now, I'm not a political preacher in the pulpit, but there's one thing that I will speak against, and it's communism, because communism is opposed to everything that we know as followers of Christ. And whatever a person's political persuasion is, you ought to be afraid of and concerned about communism. Sylvester Hassel wrote that Russian Bolshevism was one of the greatest threats to freedom and spirituality in his life. We don't want to have anything to do with Marxism. We don't want to have anything to do with communism. Yay and amen. I'll stomp around on that. He was an American citizen on foreign soil in a place that is hostile to everything that he knew, everything that he loved, to the freedom of our country, to the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. The only Internet you could get there was ChaiCom, China Communications. Don't you know when the government provides the Internet, they know what you're saying and when you say it? So you have to be very careful. He said, there's a lot of things I want to tell you when I get back. And I I interpreted that as, I can't talk about that here without fearing being arrested and Lord knows what. You can be a citizen of the kingdom on foreign soil. Josh said when he walked into the embassy, the American embassy, it smelled like America. And he felt so at home. Tears come to your eyes. When they landed in Atlanta, Georgia, after flying around the globe, they just began to cry as all of the foreigners who flew into the country began to cheer because they had landed in this land. Think about that as you think about your citizenship in the kingdom. We're all citizens of America because we were born here. We're citizens by birth, but I can be a citizen in a foreign world. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We have the embassies down here in the church, but you and I can leave this embassy and we can step out into a hostile land. We're still a citizen, but we're not enjoying the benefits of our citizenship. That's what it's like to be a member of the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens by birth, We're translated into the kingdom, but we enter into the gates by repenting and believing and being baptized and confessing Christ. And these are the parables of the kingdom of heaven. Some of these parables deal with the final phase of the kingdom. Jesus' kingship does not come to an end when the world is destroyed. He will be king for eternity. His people, his kingdom will be with him for eternity Not in little embassies like we have today at Flint River. And by the way, this is an embassy in a hostile land. You walk out from the place where the saints gather and it's a hostile land. We need to come to the embassy as often as we can. But there's coming a day when the entire kingdom will be gathered there together with Jesus. The final phase of the kingdom. One will be with him in glory forevermore. He delivers up the kingdom and every heir of promise will be there with their king for all of eternity. The kingdom of the wheat and tares, for instance, depicts that reality of the kingdom. As we already said, parables reveal things to us. We find insight in the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the treasure hid in a field. But to the world around us, the parables speak in such a veiled sense that it actually conceals the truth from many in the world. Additionally, as we study parables together, so often it is the moral of the story that we need to understand. Why is that important to keep in mind? Everything in a parable doesn't have to have a Parallel in reality. But we're going for the moral of a story here. Sometimes parables might even depict the spiritual reality that they're intended to depict in ways that would make us uncomfortable if they were to completely parallel these spiritual realities the way that a simile would. You know, there's a difference in a parable and a simile. What would be an example of that? The parable of the unjust judge. A widow comes and bothers an unjust judge that didn't fear God and didn't fear man so much that he finally avenged her of her adversaries. It would be very improper then to say that we have to come to God so much to pester him because he's unjust and he really doesn't care about us. Wouldn't that make you feel uncomfortable? It doesn't have to parallel 100%. We're going for the moral of the story, the general theme of a parable. The first of these is the parable of the treasure hid in a field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. This man is... For whatever reason in a field in this parable he's wandering through he stumbles upon treasure now treasure to us when we use the word treasure we more than likely imagine a chest full of gold buried in a location marked by an X on a map, because X marks the spy. Maybe it was put there by pirates. In in my mind, when I think of treasure that is hidden in a field, I think of pirates and a chest full of gold coins. And this is depicted in so much of our media, so many of our movies and cartoons, and maybe i watch too many childish television shows. Maybe that's what it is. You can look at the adult versions like Pirates of the Caribbean, and it's a pirate movie with treasures that are hid in a, in a vessel or a cave. To them, I want you to think more along the lines of the treasure is your 401k. The treasure is your Roth IRA. The treasure is your annuity. The treasure is your nest egg. When the New Testament uses the word treasure, many times it had money that was, had in mind money that was put up, gold that was put up, valuables that was put up, hidden somewhere to save for a rainy day. They don't have banks. They don't have electronic funds in that day. They don't have little pieces of plastic that they walk in and swipe and draws out of a balance somewhere on a database of money that is supposedly theirs. Even if you had the money, it's just paper. It's not worth the paper it's printed on. Strange times, right? The currency that they had so often in that day was in the form of precious metals. And so you would have all of these various forms of coinage, and they were made out of metals, and those those metals that coins, they had value, intrinsic value. Our currency has value because our government requires it in the form of taxes. It used to be backed up by precious metals. But in my lifetime, it has not been. It is simply declared as valuable by the powers that be. Ironically enough, The newer forms of the dollars that they've printed actually has the same color schemes as the money in Monopoly. Fact check me on that. I'm not joking. I wonder if the joke's on us. In that day, your money was gold and silver coins and... Precious metals, and it was worth something, and people would take this. They didn't have a safety deposit box. They didn't have a bank. They would hide it somewhere. This man finds a treasure. How long has it been there? It's immaterial. Who put it there? We don't know. But it's a treasure that he finds in a field. He stumbles upon it. And then he takes it and he hides it in the field. He doesn't want anyone else to do what he's done and wander through the field and stumble upon it. And he sells everything that he has for joy to go and buy the field. In buying the field, he has legal rights to the treasure that he's found in the field. Imagine walking through a field and finding a million dollars in gold or maybe stumbling across some an, an oil slick and realizing that the ground had oil in it. You'd do anything that you could to become the owner of that property. If you could buy it for $30,000, $40,000, I'll give you 100,000 an acre knowing that maybe five million dollars was on that, you'd do whatever you could to get that five million dollars in this scenario. That's exactly what the man does. That's a very interesting, short, colorful story. But it's intended to convey to us a spiritual lesson, namely the value of the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of Christ in our lives. John Gill writes concerning the treasure by which is meant not eternal life, the incorruptible inheritance, riches of glory, treasures in heaven, nor Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and all the riches of grace and glory, but the gospel, which is a treasure consisting of rich truths comparable to gold, silver, and precious stones. A treasure in unsearchable, solid, satisfying, and lasting. When Paul wrote about what he had built in the church at Corinth, Paul was the founding pastor of that church. He was an apostle, but he did serve in a pastoral role many times. He talks about the fact that he had laid the foundation of this church, which was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of that church. And he exhorts that any man that builds on that foundation take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And he makes a statement, now if any man build upon this foundation... Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. That passage has been in my mind for three months. And in speaking to pastors around the country, you'd be surprised at the trials that pastors are going through. Right now. We would whine about it, but there are so many real problems in the world, really. It still doesn't stop us from whining about it when no one's around. We do. We whine. Our work is being tried. By the fires of this world, our work is being tried. If I have built... "'Wood, hay, and stubble, upon the foundation of Christ in this church, my work will be burned up. If I have laid upon the foundation, of this, the foundation of this church, which is Christ Jesus, if I have built gold, silver, and precious stones, the gold and the silver will not be burned up by the fire of this trial.' The gold and the silver will be purified by the fire of this trial. Trials in this life have a way of burning away our impurities. They have a way of burning our draws. It has a way of consuming the wood, the hay, and the stubble. Now, this is not a knock on other denominations. It's not an attack on other types of churches. But think about the ways, the additions, the fluff, the frills that American Christianity has added to the worship of Christ. Oh, you've got every sort of different prom and party and activity. All of this stuff, none of which is mentioned in the Word of God. And when this coronavirus hit, you and I can pull up in our cars and we can have church in the exact same way in our parking lot that we have church in this building and nothing changes but the fact that it's a little warmer and we hear birds. Think about the wood, the hay, and the stubble that got burnt up when people couldn't go through all the stuff that they had gone through in the name of Christianity. The trials of this world had burned up some of the wood, the hay, and the stubble. This trial really is an opportunity for the small church to grow and thrive. It doesn't change the way we worship at all. The only difference is that we have to skip rows and we have to wear a cloth on our face so we don't sing and put germs on potential germs on people around us. That's it. That's it. It was said in the prayer last week that God's children, His disciples, Christ's disciples, have endured so much affliction in church history the threat of persecution, being arrested, being tortured while being called upon to recant. I've listened and read much early church history in the past several years, and presently I'm reading a book, and I've gone through a series of lectures on church history. All you had to do when the Romans showed up is deny Christ publicly and offer their religious sacrifices, and they would let you go if you were a Christian. Christians would go to their death for Christ. The greatest inconvenience I have at this moment is to put a piece of cloth on my faith. Boo-hoo. I'm not trying to make people mad, but if that's the biggest affliction I have to deal with, bless my heart. It's my privilege to be with you If I've got to put on a hazmat suit to worship Christ, I'm going to put on a hazmat suit and worship Christ. There are people that would be willing to be devoured by lions to worship Christ. There are people that were willing to be burned alive at a stake to worship Christ. I was listening yesterday to a lecture about King Henry and all of his wives. Because he couldn't have a male heir, so he began killing his wives because he blamed it on his wives. Wife after wife after wife after wife. Finally, he had a son named Edward. But what would a clergyman have done at all of these illegitimate marriages? Well, he would have called it out. Oh, he issued a decree that it was tantamount to treason to say anything against the marriages that he had. And so if a minister of God said, you're in sin, you need to stop, guess what would happen to that minister? He'd be burned alive. You read Hebrews 11 and you read about those that were sawn asunder. That doesn't sound pleasant. Beheaded, slain, slaughtered, stoned like Stephen. None of us have any reason to complain. This man is willing to sell... Everything for the privilege of being a part of the kingdom of God and hearing this precious gospel preached. Sell all. Sell all. Everything. He cashed in everything and he didn't do it begrudgingly. I can't believe I have to do this. He did it with joy. It was a joyful thing for him. Now what got me on this tangent is this concept of the gospel being treasure, gold, silver, and precious stones. But I warn you that our work is being tried. Our work is being tried. Churches around the country are being tried. And this fire will burn away the dross in me in us, beware, lest it burn us up. The kingdom of heaven is like in a treasure. So valuable that a man would sell everything that he owned and joyfully, joyfully, go buy the whole field. Now as Gill points out, this is an eternal salvation. Why would it not be eternal salvation? You don't sell everything you own to buy eternal salvation. (laughs) We're not redeemed with corruptible things, as it were, but with the precious blood of Christ. But even the act of selling would be what? It would be a work. Selling is a work. That's why salesmen do that for a living. Selling is a work. Retailers work. This isn't talking about earning eternal life or selling all you have that you might have eternal life to take a vow of poverty so that you can be with Jesus in heaven. Salvation is by what? The free and sovereign grace of God. Salvation is by grace. This is speaking, as Gil said, about the blessings we have in the gospel and being willing to give up everything that we count dear from this world's Perspective for the joy that we find in the gospel of Christ. The gold, the silver, and the precious stones that will not be burned away. Think about the things that have been burned out of American life right now by this coronavirus. Sports, recreation, drunken parties, all the things people whine about that they're not able to do right now. A lot of these things are contrary to the way a disciple should live and do? Oh, God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't He? All these idols around us on fire, burning up. If it purifies the gold, if it burns out my dross, then I ought to say, Thy will be done, O Lord. This treasure stood for 2,000 years, and if Christ tarries 2,000 more years, it will be here as pure as it has ever been, as a treasure hidden in a field. Selling all that we have as we see the kingdom and we rejoice in the gospel and we pursue it is the response of eternal life in a man's life and not the cause of eternal life in a man's life. We are to pursue Christ through the gospel in His church in His kingdom and we are to do it with joy. The Puritan John Trapp compared the field to the church and the treasure as the gospel. That's an interesting take. The field is the church, the treasure is the gospel. You've got to buy the field to get the gospel. That's an interesting application of that because you can't separate one from the other. We're not to be lone wolves. It's the gospel of the kingdom. We come to the church to hear the gospel. And I know that we're living in a time of pandemic, and so a lot of people turn on the live stream to hear the gospel, and that's okay temporarily. It's not okay long term because the church is an assembly. But we understand right now. Believe me, we understand right now. We have to be careful not to let that become the pattern, though, because church is assembly. Assembly is church. We buy the field to get the treasure. Trapp's application, we become a part of the church so we can find that gospel treasure within it. Trapp continues, The spades and mattocks wherewith it is to be digged up and attained unto our hands and eyes, not pouring in earth, but praying towards heaven. Beautiful poetic language. Lastly, this treasure is hidden in a field and it's stumbled upon. We already made mention of that. Think of those, however, who pass by this place and they have no joy. They have no idea of the joy that you find in the worship of Christ. I hope as we sang praises to Him today that your heart was filled with joy. I hope that you were revived. I hope that your heart burned for Christ, that the Holy Spirit filled you and invigorated you. As we prayed, I hope that your heart turned towards heaven and your heart turned toward Christ and you felt close to Him. There are people that would pass by and this treasure's hid to them. They don't see the joy in it, they don't see the benefit in it. And I don't intend this as any insult to those that gather for sports, but just contrast the The fact that we're surrounded by so much worldly activity. This little church in the middle of a little community and folks are around it nearly every day of the week and they don't know the joy that is to be found in a place such as this. It's hidden in a field. It's hidden. Next, the pearl of a great price, verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. How is this parable different immediately, right off the bat, than the previous parable that you looked at? The previous parable, the man is stumbling through a field, he comes upon treasure, and he hides it where no one else can find it. He buys the field just so that he can have the treasure, and he does it with joy. This parable is different because this man is seeking pearls, and he comes across this one pearl of great price, And he sells all that he had, and he bought it. Now, since this is a man that is seeking goodly pearls, more than likely, he's a merchant man. He has other pearls. He might have nice pearls. And yet he sells every single pearl that he had, everything that he owned, probably his home, his livestock, a field that he might own, that he might harvest, that he might glean and grow from, He sells everything that he has. Because he's a merchant, he's probably a very wealthy man, he gets rid of everything he owns to buy that one pearl. That one pearl. You must be thinking, that some pearl. Yes, sir, it is. It sure is. As we think about the gospel as a pearl of great price... What I want you to think about are all of the competing worldviews around you today. This was one of the points that we brought into our message four weeks ago when we considered the fact that those who follow Christ will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Illumination to your walk. You'll be informed how to live, how to walk. You'll have a biblical worldview. You'll know how to treat people. You'll know how to view institutions. You'll know how you ought to react in the middle of this confusing day and age. And we shared so many proverbs with you about that. What a confusing time to live in. So many pearls. In my mind, and... My understanding, and I'm in good company with this, you can look at all of the worldviews of this world as the pearls in this man's collection. You have all of the religions all of the philosophies. Think about the day in which Jesus spoke this parable. You have all of the philosophers and their various philosophies. You have Athens and Areopagus, Mars Hill, and in the court of the philosophers, you'd have men that would sit and reason and argue, and they all had their various ideas. You have debates between the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they would all come together and argue their different positions. The Stoics would be people who would shun emotion and the pursuit of worldly pleasure. You had the Epicureans, Epicureans, the people who were a variation of hedonistic people who would say, if it feels good, do it. Pleasure's the, the greatest thing in the world. And so, whatever makes you feel good, if it doesn't hurt others, you should do that. All of these worldviews bouncing off of each other, competing with each other, debating with each other. All of these pearls, all of these religions. All of these ideas, these worldviews, these frameworks for understanding the world around you. This man is looking for pearls. Maybe he's a man that investigates all of the different ideas of this life. This is something that even people in the Scriptures did. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon the preacher, he considered every different perspective, everything that could make a man happy, Cynicism, stoicism, even though stoicism wasn't around yet, the cynicism of that worldview certainly was one of the things that Solomon considered in Ecclesiastes. On the other hand, you have people, you have the idea to just be wealthy and live it up, and he comes to the conclusion of the matter that everything is vanity. Sometimes preachers become a little disgruntled. And we come to the end of the day, and we say, "All is vanity and vexation of spirit." And that was Solomon's mind in Ecclesiastes. He took a a journey through every lifestyle, and comes to the close of it, and says, "The sum of the matter is to honor God and to keep His commandments, and remember Him in the days of your youth." That the only thing that you find lasting joy and satisfaction in in this world. Is the service of God. You might look at all of those things that Solomon pursued as pearls things that men pursue our ventures, our ideas, our entertainments, our allegiances. Oh, well, they're all pearls. To us, they're valuable. But there's a pearl of great price that we ought to be willing to give every single one of them up for. One pearl, this one pearl, outshines them all. This man went and sold all that he had. And he bought this one pearl, selling all. Would I be willing to give up everything in my life for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? In this parable, and the one before, it's presented in such a way as to have such value that the person that finds it for joy would sell all to be able to have it. Now, what do we mean by sell all? I'm going to direct you in just a moment to the book of Luke chapter 9. What do we mean by sell all? Does this mean that we are to sell our homes, our cars, your clothes, maybe the jewelry your grandmother left you, firearm collection, ATV, boats, personal watercraft? Get rid of everything that you enjoy so that you can be a member of the church and live, I suppose, in some sort of homeless-ish type commune. I don't believe that's the point that Jesus is making here. In fact, I know it isn't. How do you know that? I find examples all through the Gospels and the book of Acts of disciples who continue to work their jobs They continued to live in their homes. If they had excess of homes and land, they would sell what they had in excess because there was a great dearth, and they would give the proceeds from that which they sold so that all disciples had food and shelter and clothing. That was a part of what they did. But I read of Aquila and Priscilla that were still tent makers. Paul made tents many times. I read of a centurion. He was a centurion when Peter found him. He was a centurion when Peter left him. It's not that we all quit everything that we do and go to some sort of a monastery to live as monks. There are some Christians in early centuries that interpreted it that way. No, we continue to live our lives right in the world, but we're not of the world. But we turn from everything in this world that is in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ or competition with the Lord Jesus Christ. We put it to death, we mortify it, and we follow Him. We sell all. Luke chapter 9, there's several occurrences of people who were commanded to follow Him, who gave various excuses. Now, I am very good at excuses. You mean, ask my mom, growing up, always had an excuse. It was never what it looked like it was being your hand's in the cookie jar. Well, see, I thought that always an excuse. You parents know what I'm talking about. Jesus interacts with people with excuses. Luke 9 and 57, It came to pass that as they went their way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. I'm going to follow you everywhere, Jesus. Jesus said, The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has not where to lay his head. Unto another he said, Follow me. The man said, Lord, suffer me to go bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead. That's harsh language. Let the dead bury their dead. But go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Another said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid farewell to them which are at home at my house. I want you to understand what following Jesus meant in that day. It meant literally to leave your home and follow Jesus around. Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Ouch! Does that scare you like it does me? This is serious business. We take it so lightly. We make it so convenient in today's time. Being a disciple of Jesus was anything but convenient. Luke 14, Jesus gives a parable about that. certain man, in verse 16, made a great supper and bade many, invited many, and sent a servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, invited, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent with, began to make excuses. The first said, I've bought a piece of ground, I, I need to go look at it. I pray thee, have me excused. Now, I don't know about you, but we've all been invited to something we didn't want to go to and began to make excuses. Sorry, I've got to wash my hair that day. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I, I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. I, I've bought a bunch of oxen. I've got to go deal with it. And another said, I married a wife. I therefore cannot come. Blaming it on his wife. We've been doing that for thousands of years, men. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. The master of the house, being angry, said to his servants... Now, this is a parable against the Jews of the first century who didn't come into the church, didn't worship Christ. The master was angry. Go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Why? That his house would be full. It is done as thou hast commanded in their still room. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be filled. Jesus has a concern with his house being filled, by the way. Sometimes primitive Baptists don't have a concern that his house is filled. But Jesus has a concern that his house is filled. I say unto you that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. That ought to scare us. If Jesus invites us nigh to feast on his gospel and we say, I'm not interested, I've got other things to do, we are on dangerous ground. This, again, was a lesson to the first century Jew. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned, and he said unto them, here he gets to the point, If any man come to me and hate not father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus really want you to hate your wives? No. No. You're supposed to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. What he has reference to there is putting Christ above them to the extent that if they forbid you from following him, you would follow follow him rather over listening and honoring them. Teenagers, if your mom and dad said you're not permitted to worship Jesus, you say, I ought to obey God rather than men. This is the one tie in the world that is to come above every other sort of allegiance. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As we talk about selling all, the all that we sell, sometimes we have to put to death. That's why we bear a cross, a symbol of execution and a symbol of shame. Which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether you have sufficient to finish it? Lest happily he hath laid the foundation, is not able to finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him. Could you imagine passing by and seeing a glorious tower that's only about half built, and you begin to laugh at the guy that tried to build it and ran out of funds? Sounds like a government project, doesn't it? Then he compares it to a king going to war and doesn't sit down first and count up whether he has sufficient men to fight it. come to the conclusion in verse 33, Likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. That's in the negative. In the positive, what we say is that we count it all joy to forsake and sell everything that this world offers us for the privilege of following Jesus Christ as a disciple. Whereas as Paul said, Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ.